1: Hi, it's Tom here, one third of the Spike podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners, all of our readers who so generously donate to us, either monthly or whenever you can. It's really, really appreciated. Spiked is free. We want to keep it that way. And donations are a great way to help us do that. So if you already give, thank you very much. And if you don't, please do consider giving us a donation. It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com click the donate button in the top right of the homepage and fill in your details. Thanks so much. And now on with the show.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. And with me this week, is Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Trump's racist tweets, the Warwick rape chat scandal, and the women going on birth strike.
0: People that, in my opinion, hate our country. You can leave. You can leave right now.
1: Tweeting, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. This is
0: the agenda of white nationalists. This is not the first, nor will it be the last time we hear disgusting, bigoted language from the president. This gives new meaning to the White House.
2: The U.S. House of Representatives has voted to condemn Donald Trump for posting a series of racist tweets... In the tweets, he attacked four Democratic congresswomen known as The Squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. Trump said that they should go back to the crime-infested places from which they came. All four are US citizens. Three of them were born in the US. Tom, what are your thoughts on this racist outburst?
1: Well, I think it was absolutely disgusting. And I think all of the people, though few they are, it should be said, who are trying to kind of dress these tweets up as anything other than they are, which was deeply racist, evoking one of the oldest racist tropes in the book, which is effectively that someone based on what they look like and, you know, their lineage are less American, less citizens than than anyone else. Um, I think those people who are trying to split hairs just need to have a word with themselves. This is really clear cut. It is entirely obvious what Trump was saying with these comments. Um, and whilst some people will want to point out, and it's fair enough to say that this is obviously potentially part of a kind of strategy of Trump to try and associate the Democratic Party with these four um, quote-unquote progressive Congresswomen that, you know, this might have been a win for him, etc. Whilst I think there's some truth in that, that obviously doesn't excuse the content of what he said. Um, And I think one of the things that's actually been quite heartening um, in the last couple of days is to see the response to these comments, not just um, from his critics, but also from people who would normally support him. You've seen a lot of, as I was saying, kind of hair splitting and kind of weasel words from Republicans in Congress, given the fact they don't want to obviously want up Trump and they're worried mm. that you know a bad tweet from him might put them in danger in their own districts but you know the all the polling that's been done ever since shows that not only a majority of the country but even a plurality of Republicans um dislike these comments USA today had a poll saying sixty five percent believe what Trump said was racist um, and I think it's quite clear that how have we got to this place? This is a clear point at which Trump has overstepped the line and is indulging in precisely the kind of vile white identity politics um, that some of his critics have have long argued he has. I think one thing that's important to point out, and I think one thing that's interesting from some of the reports you see talking particularly to Trump voters and Trump supporters, is that there is still this measure of defensiveness, you know. Mm. And I think that this is... While none of this excuses what Trump said, I think there is something kind of interesting. We have gotten to the point where the accusation of racism has been so flung at Trump in so many different situations, that at least for some people, not all people, I should say, that instantly more guarded and more defensive about accepting it even when it's staring them in the face. So I think there's maybe a little bit of a lesson in that but at the same time I don't think that um, alters at all um, how seriously we should treat these disgusting comments.
0: Ella, your thoughts? Well aside from the obvious racism within those tweets there was also something interesting going on in terms of what Trump was saying about the fact that this group, the squad, criticise America all the time. Why are they criticising America all the time? Shouldn't they just go back home? Uh, you know, this idea that you're not allowed to, it's un-American to criticise America. Mm. And of course, you know, they argue what they're doing is saying there is a lot of things wrong with America at the moment. We're doing exactly what you did Trump, Trump, which is say we want to make America great again when the suggestion there is that it's not very good at the moment. But there's something interesting going on there, I think, because while it on the one hand shows Trump's obvious kind of, Snowflakery you know mm. the the sensitiveness around criticizing america the you know we 've seen it in other areas in terms of the sensitiveness around not flying the flag, not singing national anthems all of that stuff shows a kind of bit of a pathetic side to him, but actually, in terms of the kind of criticisms that the squad or that kind of set within the Democrats make of America is tied up with their identity politics, their sort of conflation between the parts of American politics that definitely should be criticised and this sort of general uh, disdain for the white blob America. And that means that actually a lot of their criticism does feel like just America bashing. And over here when people criticise Trump, what they're actually often doing is rather than pointing the finger at Trump's policies or his politics is they're kind of hating on the Homer Simpson-esque American man. Mm. So... You know, I think even though you want to criticise Trump's comments, it's a bit of a plague on both their houses' situation because they both need each other. You know, Trump needs to upset this Democrat squad. And as Brendan O'Neill wrote in his spiked article, it's a very smart move because essentially all anyone is ever talking about now is about the crazy politics of the Democrat squad. On the other hand, forevermore now, we're going to have these racist tweets by Trump held up as exhibit A of how terrible America is. So I think this isn't going to end anytime soon.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, although Trump's comments, I think, are infinitely worse than anything the squad have said, but they, they do have something more in common, which is their kind of ability to dominate the news cycle. I mean, if you think about these tweets were made on on Sunday, the world is still talking about them. You know, it ironically it was actually the same day that some of the ICE deportation raids began. And yet there is far more interest from the media in, you know, him being disrespectful and, and racist towards these congresswomen than there is in, you know, the treatment of actual migrants. And it's really interesting that throughout this whole process the the migration story Always actually turns back to this, to the squad, often to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who has made the story about her at every turn. I mean, we all remember the photos of her standing outside the migrant camp crying, dressed in white. We only ever saw the photos of her. We didn't see photos of conditions in the camp. And similarly, last week, you know, at a hearing to talk about migration and the border, AOC insists on being sworn in, which is not part of the usual convention. Why did she insist on being sworn in? So that she could have the photo opportunity of her standing, looking solemn, with her right hand held aloft, you know, looking very, very honest. So there is something quite strange that they do that both sides do have in common in that sense which is to to entirely make the actual the massive problems that america has on the border to make it all about
1: them no definitely and there's definitely an argument that needs to be made as you just did about making sure that not letting trump throw these kind of um, grenades into the public discussion just to kind of distract attention away from other things that um, he is doing or just to kind of try and reclaim a bit of the narrative or try to score political points um at the same time, I think what's kind of interesting about these comments is they just overstepped the line to such a degree that yeah. it was um so striking. Not only the things that he said in that series of tweets, but also the press conferences he gave afterwards, which he doubled down. Mm-hmm. At one point he completely baselessly suggested that Ilan Omar had endorsed Al Qaeda, which is an incredibly, you know, reckless thing to suggest about um a visibly Muslim woman. Um but at the same time I think I take all these points about how this kind of really parasitic relationship between the kind of woke left as embodied by the self dubbed squad, as well as, um, Trump and his kind of identitarian right-wing politics. I mean, it's kind of interesting to remember that this whole spat actually began by the squad calling Nancy Pelosi racist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) effectively, insofar as they had this big argument over border legislation in which um, the squad effectively accused the Democratic leadership and the moderates of capitulating too much to Trump, um, letting this bill pass through just to fund the border agencies, but without adding enough um, protections, as they might have seen it for, for the migrants there. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, being quite vocal in criticising the squad, suggesting, you know, at the end of the day, they're just four votes in the House, them getting very upset about this, Ocasio-Cortez effectively saying, why are you singling out four women of colour? And that was the point at which Trump saw this seized upon it and tried to use it to, as an opportunity to kind of accentuate the divisions within the Democratic Party. So it's, it's so clear that you have these kind of two competing Kind of um, racialisms, if you like, which mm. are really feeding each other. That's not to say that we shouldn't, we should draw some kind of moral equivalence to them. But the one thing I will add, and I think it's, it's come back to the fore now that Ilan Omar in particular is pushing for this BDS legislation recently, or pushing for this motion in the House in relation to um, BDS, is the fact that on the extremes of the woke left, you do have some genuinely grim prejudices. We're not just talking about lame identitarianism, you know. Ilan Omar has flirted pretty openly with anti-Semitism in the past, suggesting that the influence of Israel on the Hill is all about money, raising Mm. tropes of dual loyalty, etc. And what we seem to be entering is kind of competitive left-right accusations of of racism, which are only going to really obscure the kind of broader issue. But yes, it does feel like we're at least getting into a position where now we've just got two competing forms of identity politics fighting it out and that doesn't seem to be a particularly good prospect for anyone.
2: You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Around a year ago, a group of students from Warwick University were caught making vile comments in a private Facebook chat. The comments included rape jokes as well as racist, ableist and misogynistic language. Some of the comments related to specific women on campus. For instance, one contributor said of a female student, rape her while everyone watches, while another added, rape the whole flat to teach them a lesson. The fallout from the group chat has led to campus protests, a social media campaign, an independent review, public apologies, a lawsuit against the university, and ongoing media coverage, including a documentary by the BBC. Ella, what are your thoughts on this scandal and how has it escalated so much?
0: Well, it's escalated because there's a kind of salacious need for these sort of stories. And I think you have to really pare it back and accept the fact that this was a private conversation. No matter how disgusting it was, uh, no matter how stupid it was. I mean, really, I think the bottom line is it was just idiotic. They said things like, sometimes it's fun to just go wild and rape 100 girls. Now, that is not a serious statement. That's a stupid statement from a stupid boy who has probably never been near a girl or a woman in his life, if he mm. thinks that of them. But what's happened is that because the chat got leaked and because we're in this kind of climate of a panic about sexual harassment, rather than being accepted as... A ridiculous conversation in private among a group of boys who probably wouldn't want to go out for a pint with afterwards and you might question their intelligence it's been turned into this example of how stark the danger for women on campuses how terrible sexual harassment is how depraved a young generation of boys are sexually and none of that is true mm-hmm. One, it's a one-off. This is not happening. There's no proof to show that this is happening on every campus in every group chat. This seems to be a particularly odd group of friends. Um, But also, no action has happened in relation to those threats. At no point did any of these boys make any sexual advances. At no point did they uh, say these things out loud to these women. It all happened within, uh, hypothetically (laughs) within a private group chat. So I think that distinction between what's private and public has been completely eroded Mm. and that's very dangerous. But the second point is how the women have reacted. Uh, And I've been really disappointed by this because understandably they were upset especially those who were named um it's really not a very pleasant thing to have people say nasty things about you and especially not to uh, threaten rape no matter how ridiculous it sounded But rather than having this conversation themselves or, you know, fine, going to the university and complaining about it, any of these things, it's now turned into this ridiculous saga, which at this point, I think two of the women are suing the university Mm -hmm. for, you know, negligence in relation to how they handled it. Um, They are claiming that they cannot physically be in the same geographical area as the men um, because they feel physically threatened by them. And all this is saying is that, you know, it's painting an incredibly pathetic picture of women uh, and it's really quite damaging for any argument for women's freedom because it is saying that we are cowed and threatened by hypothetical words made by infantile boys.
1: Yeah, Tom. I think that it's just striking, as you say in your introduction phrase, kind of how long this is worn on for um, and how big of a story it's become. And you do have to remember, as Joe Williams pointed out in her piece about the case this week on Spikes, that this is a case that is just about words. I mean, she put it uh, bluntly, but effectively, I think, is the non-rape rape rape scandal, you know, insofar as this is just about puerile, disgusting jokes being made in private, which get leaked to the campus newspaper, and then suddenly it becomes this huge story. And the outcome of all of this, not only... the the coverage and the um, lawsuits which are um, going about now, but you've had 11 male students from this group have been temporarily suspended. Six were banned from campus for periods ranging from one year to actually life. In two cases, there were two students who actually appealed this. They they had their bans brought down to one year, but then after there was more backlash, effectively it seemed like the university had a word, and as a consequence of this discussion, they agreed that they wouldn't come back at all and that just seems to me a completely crazy over-the-top punishment for Mm. what was just being a complete idiot in private. And as disgusting and as puerile these jokes were, the thing is that context matters. And making those kinds of jokes when you think it's only between yourselves is an entirely different thing from, you know, making these kinds of rape comments about individual women, you know, in public or posting these things publicly or putting them up online where everyone can see them, where you know the effect of that is going to be to um, upset at the very least the people who are named in that thing. It's very, very different. And I think people need to be quite careful about going down this road to the point where the university is not only. Responsible as it has been for a very long time, for basically playing parent to students, for policing who's allowed to speak on campus, for um, effectively having to become kind of in loco parentis for students despite them being grown adults, but actually being brought in to police their private conversations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how disgusting the content of these particular private conversations happen to be. I think this is taking us down a pretty dangerous road, and I think kind of in tandem with the Felix and Gole case, which is everyone's been talking about for some time, the Christian social work student who was off of his course, recently won an appeal for posting um, his Christian views on homosexuality on Facebook. I think we are entering an era where, because of pressure from students and campaigners, the university authorities are going to be more and more empowered to police not just what you say on campus, but actually what you say in private. And I think that's actually quite a dangerous road that we seem to be going down.
0: And then the important thing to note is that this has been brewing for a long time. So Mm. it's not just that we're – certainly things have ramped up, but we're not in an era of, like, crazy students doing crazy things. I mean, if you know your feminist theory, you know that in 1993 – Catherine McKinnon wrote a book called Only Words, and that set the scene for exactly what we're seeing today. And there's just this interesting passage from it that I quote in my book, What Women Want, where she says, if ever words have been understood as acts, it has been when they are sexual harassment, unremitting pressure for dates, unwelcome sexual comments, authoritative offers to exchange sex for benefits, blah, 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 only words, yet they have not been seen as conveying ideas, although like all social practices, they do. And that was a really important bit of feminist criticism because what mm. she was laying out was that it's not just rape or sexual assault but actually it's the words that men say um that pose a similar if not equal physical effect on women as actually grabbing women and raping women and it almost can read like a contemporary campus sexual harassment policy yeah. and it's why you have a situation today where a private conversation between a group of boys can be taken as physical threat to women because there is this conflation and has been for over 20 years now within feminist thought that words are the same as physical acts
2: well yeah and and, and if you think about the general climate of as you've alluded to um you know of uh, on campus the View that sexual harassment is rife and you get these, you know, endless surveys telling you that one in four women, one in five women have been sexually harassed on campus. And, and then you find, you know, you dig a bit deeper and you find out that unwanted advances are considered sexual harassment. You know, being chatted up at a bar is considered sexual harassment. And there's surveys and surveys show that quite a large percentage of young women think that things like winking are sexual harassment and just creates this very distorted picture of what life is actually like. But it also creates a very, a, a climate where people are very fraught and, and where things like this actually quite disgusting things that we can even all agree are disgusting comments just explode in a way that they probably wouldn't if um in a a more normal um less fraught atmosphere
1: no you're right they become more symbolic don't they because if if you're um fed a narrative which is that um you're almost more at threat on campus than you are in the rest of society which is actually the complete inverse of the truth if you Mm. actually look at the statistics in this area um then when you see these little scandals pop up, you're going to see them as far more significant, far more emblematic of this. Because one of the arguments around um rape culture, as it's sometimes discussed, or particularly on campus, where this discussion is very much live and has been for a long time, is the fact that um, even when it's not explicit, it's bubbling under the surface. Yeah. It's expressed in the jokes men tell. It's expressed in the music we listen to. Um, and that is definitely part of the kind of outsized reaction we see to this case and to one similar to it, is the fact that, as you say, the broader narrative, is one which is telling people to feel constantly at peril, and so it kind of just becomes um, self perpetuating because mm. the more that that narrative exists, the more that people kind of overreact and take as proof you know cases like this which actually have very little to do with sexual assault itself and very much to do with idiot young men who um, just sounding off between themselves on the internet
2: and the, and the worst thing is it ex- actually expresses the the opposite it doesn't say that sexual assault is acceptable it expresses the fact that sexual assault is taboo and vile. Otherwise, they would not be making these jokes.
0: Yeah, well, going forward, I mean, if you're actually serious about women's freedom, I mean, there is an interesting point to be made about the rise of things like, I mean, the relative rise of things like incels, Mm. online, or the rouge fees of this world, or, you know, this kind of chat amongst young men who think it's funny to talk about rape. The reason why that's come about is because there's been this oversensitivity around rape culture and sexual harassment and this panic Mm. which hasn't been a serious targeted effect of making women free but it's about problematizing the entirety of sexual relations between men and women and so then you get these boys who know it's wrong to joke about rape but do it anyway because they're just kind of kicking against the pricks in a really infantile way so if you want to actually be serious about sexual harassment and women's freedom both sides stop playing like children and stop taking offense at everything.
2: you're listening to the spiked podcast spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing for those of you who already donate to spiked we can't thank you enough it really means a lot to the team but if you haven't already then why not consider giving spiked a donation you can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the big red donate button in the top right corner Singer Miley Cyrus has vowed not to have any children because the earth can't handle it. She joins a number of environmentalists who have gone on birth strike until governments can get a handle on climate change. The birth strike movement has distanced itself from previous campaigns for population control, which it describes as a colonialist. Ella, you've written about this phenomenon do you want to tell us a bit about it?
0: Yeah, so it's been born out of the kind of Extinction Rebellion movement, which seems to be taking sort of a different focus for different people. And uh, this young woman, Blythe Peppino, who's part of Extinction Rebellion, decided that she was going to take a stand. And even though she wanted children, that was important, that she said, I do want children. I'm going to take the self-sacrifice and not have them because I think that it's wrong to, A, bring kids into a dystopian future, which Extinction Rebellion thinks is coming, Mm. um, and B, there's too many people on the planet and that's, you know, human beings are part of the problem in relation to climate change. Now, birth strike make really clear that they are different from previous antinatalists. And the whole kind of population control discussion has been around for decades. Mm. Um, and there's been organisations like Population Matters, of which David Attenborough is a patron, who really quite explicitly say... Uh, women need to stop having kids in certain parts of the world developing mm. countries because that's having a negative effect uh, on the planet and from to my mind that smells a bit like eugenicists thought and is definitely racist bird strike are different and the interesting thing is that they're sort of trying to straddle <laughs> this problem of both being really quite misanthropic at their heart the mm. idea that human beings are the problem but also recognising the fact that there are battles within women's reproductive rights ongoing. So they state that they're pro-choice, they state that they're non-judgmental, they state that this is just a personal choice and yada, yada, yada. But really, they've got a campaign going to encourage men and women to be consciously childless, Uh, And you have to accept that and take that at face value as a statement about politicising women's bodies. And in the general context of the fight for women's bodily autonomy, where in Northern Ireland or in Poland or in Texas or in lots of places in the world, women are guilt tripped into their decisions about their pregnancies and stopped from making decisions about their pregnancies, doing it in the inverse way Mm. where you're essentially making women feel guilty for having babies is just as bad.
1: Tom, I think this whole birth strike thing and the whole concern with overpopulation as it pops up every once in a while really does just demonstrate how anti-human the whole environmentalist movement at its extremes really is. You know, yeah. if you're really having a discussion about how it's a horrible thing to bring children into the world, you know, you know that something's gone terribly terribly wrong here first of all it's just completely ridiculous you know there's been kind of doom-mongering predictions about overpopulation pretty much ever since anyone's written anything down most famously in the 1800s obviously Thomas Malthus is suggesting that um, the work, the earth could only take so much more at the time which he was writing there was about 980 million people on the planet there's more people than that now in China and yeah. they're doing just fine so it's obvious that time and time again this is shot down the more people you have the more problem solvers you have the more ingenuity you have collectively to overcome the sort of problems that we have but I think what's interesting about it is that it really just does express that kind of anti-humanism and that kind of lack of faith of belief in the kind of human project if you like not to get too grand about something Miley Cyrus said but there is something (laughs) in there about when you're really talking about how terrible it is to bring children into the world that that really does come to the fore and I think we also should point out the um the dodginess of this argument as it's often made in relation to the third world of course like Population Matters formerly known as the Optimum Population Trust we should always remember it's a far more terrifying name um, <laughs> they've, they they have actually go out of their way and t- to try and present this as it's not about the third world it's not about this but every once in a while the mask slips with these people I yeah. mean, David Attenborough he's one of their patrons in 2013 he had this um, interview to the Radio Times he said we keep putting up programs about famine in Ethiopia that's what's happening too many people there they can't support themselves and it's not an inhuman Thing to say. So when you are getting into this discussion, the conversation almost always turns to kind of Africa and various other places where supposedly they can't sustain themselves. Whereas we all know the issue there is not um, how many people are there, but obviously the lack of development and the lack of and the need for economic growth. So even though this is a really silly story, um, I think it really does express how worryingly mainstream that kind of really anti-human, Malthusian outlook is, and how, you know, whereas it used to be kind of doom-mongering reverence that used to make these kind of predictions, now it's supposedly, you know, trendy pop stars.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, The talking about the focus on the developing world, um, it, it's inevitable that they would turn their focus on there, because that's where the population is is, is growing. It's not, there isn't an exploding population in, in Surrey, for instance, so David Attenborough is not going to take his campaigns there, but the th- The dark place where this leads is also expressed in the way that a group like Population Matters. Now, they may have changed their stance on this because they've since deleted it from their website, but it is archived. So I can promise you this is true. They were... A few years ago, campaigning against allowing Syrian refugees into, into Britain, because not only do they believe that the world has an optimum population, they also believe that Britain has an optimum population. It's full. And it's full. And anything, it's already over over capacity in their view. Around 50 million is the environmentally sustainable population for Britain. And anything more is, is dangerous. And it's, it's completely bizarre that these groups, because they're environmentalists, get away with being so anti-human, get away with drawing some very racist conclusions, but they have this kind of gloss of Wanting to save the planet. So nobody calls them out on it.
0: It's completely mainstream. I mean, I don't know if anyone else was celebrating World Population Day on Thursday this <laughs> week, which is a thing <laughs> in which you kind of. You Nothing know, to celebrate. Yeah, by. Yeah, celebrate yeah. by the fact that you were ever born. In the yeah. And uh, on the launch of it, the UN announced its support for this campaign, Thriving Together, which sounds wonderful, but is actually <laughs> a campaign backed by some quite questionable, supposedly pro choice organisations like Mary Stokes, who have an interest in bringing contraception to the developing world not for reasons of women's bodily autonomy and that explicitly says and it's backed up by dr jane goodall and david attenborough and all the kind of lovies that we need to increase access to contraception and reproductive services in you know countries in africa to arrest the huge losses of biodiversity by reducing population growth so yeah. basically we need to support the growth of beetles not black people yeah. mm-hmm. i mean it is that explicit and that's a un-backed campaign yeah. which was announced in an article in the guardian with no shame and you think why is there a blindness around this kind of conflation between being nice to the planet and being so deeply misanthropic and racist and the most important point that it comes down to is if we are those of us who are pro-choice or which spikes is arguing for the depoliticization of women's bodies In relation to their reproductive rights. So if we're saying that the state and the church have to get out of women's wombs to give them freedom to access abortion services, then you don't allow environmentalists in either to (laughs) politicise our bodies. Back off, a woman's choice about her pregnancy is deeply personal, private and should never be political.
2: You've been listening to the Spike Podcast If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week,
1: but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.